Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that uh, you are, are so willing to speak to us. And Father, sometimes you're more willing to speak than we are to listen. But Lord, we pray today that you'd give us ears to hear what the Spirit would say as we open up your word, as we read it, as we think about it, as we think about this incredible book, which really chronicles the birth of the church and just the, the, the explosive events that happened 2,000 years ago. Father, we thank you that Jesus is alive today, that Jesus is still as interested in his church today as he was then, that Jesus still wants to do incredible things in and through his church today. And Lord, we pray that you'd help us to grasp something of what you want to do in our day and generation. Father, in this church congregation here, Father, in the church uh, congregations across the town and across this area and across our nation. And Father, we pray that you would do something in your church which uh, you've not done for a long time. Father, that you do something new in your church as well. Father, that you just begin to stir us up and may we hear the voice of the Spirit speaking into the very depths of our being. And Father, we pray that we would respond to what you say. Lord, help us not to be just people who hear and walk away and forget, but, Father, to allow your word to get into our soul, into our spirit, and, Father, to just bring the, the life and the fruit that you want it to bring in our hearts. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to read a few verses uh, from the book of Acts, chapter 1, and uh, we'll read from verse 1. And it says, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote... Uh, about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive and he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? I'm not going to touch on this verse during the sermon, but I really think it's interesting that Jesus is telling them that something miraculous is going to happen, and they're thinking about the other thing. They're thinking about what they thought Jesus was going to do all along, and that was to come and sort out Rome and sort out who was in charge and bring deliverance for the Jewish people. That's where they were going back to in their minds. But then Jesus said this in verse 7, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Amen. We're going to stop there uh, for a reading today. Please do take time to read through uh, the readings that were set out. You know, I was going to ask you at the start to turn to Acts chapter 29. I wonder how many people would have tried to turn to Acts chapter 29. 
because there is no Acts chapter 29 in the book anyway, but look around and you will see Acts chapter 29. It's all the stuff that hasn't been written about by Luke, and you are in, you are included in that. Acts chapter 29. We are the church of today. Do you believe that? Some people believe it. I'm wondering if most people believe that you are the church of today and that God has a plan and a purpose for you, for the life which you are living right now, for this church, God has a plan and a purpose. And I'm wondering if we are really, truly excited about the plans and purposes that God has for us. Are you excited about the plans and purposes God has for you? Thank you, some enthusiasm. I'm excited about what God is doing. I just want to see more and more and more of what God is doing. I want just to see my life being given over to that more and more and more. And we're thinking about this book of Acts, and today, really, the title of what I want to say is that you may know. That you may know. That is our introduction to the book of Acts today. And the book of Acts, well, in my Bible here, it's just called Acts some people, uh, in some Bibles, you'll see it, uh, it says the Acts of the Apostles. And uh, I have read uh, lots of other things and other people who call it not the Acts of the Apostles, but the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And in part, I get what has been said. So is it the Acts of the Apostles or is it the Acts of the Holy Spirit? What do you think? I think, I think it's both. I think it's both. And uh, as one of the, the books that I refer to is Jack Hayford's Bible Handbook, I find that a really helpful book. And in that, he says, the acts of the Spirit of Christ working in and through the apostles. That's, what he, that's his working title for the book, if you like. The acts of the Spirit of Christ working in and through the apostles. So, no Holy Spirit, no book of acts. No people willing to... Be obedient to the Holy Spirit, no book of Acts, okay? And this is what's incredible about the church, is that the God of all creation, the creator of the whole universe, comes through His Spirit and wants to live in us and do incredible things through us, the church. If you like, the, 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 the Bible talks about the church being like a body. So you're looking at a body just now, okay, a very handsome one. I heard that. You're looking at a body just now that has hands that can do things, that can fix things, that has feet that can go places, that has all sorts of expressions. We are the body of Christ. The church is the body of Christ, of which he is the head. He is the command. He is the control center. He is the one who directs the church. And we just want to be in a place where we're willing to be obedient, okay? You know, when something's broken in the body, and I've had this experience a few times over the last number of years, when something's broken in the body, the brain wants to tell it to do something, but because there's pain, it can't do it. Or because there's dysfunction, it can't do it. I think the church needs to be in a place where we've dealt with our pain, where we've dealt with our hurts, where we've dealt with our brokenness, so that when the command center tells us to go and do something, go and say something, we're in the place to be obedient and to follow through and to do it. That was all free of charge. That wasn't even in my notes. So let's look at this book 
Uh, it was written by a man called Luke. We can refer to him as Dr. Luke, and we can do that because Paul refers to him in Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, as our dear friend, Luke, the doctor. I have a friend who is a doctor. He stays in Aberdeen, right? <laughs> Mr. Duffy, some of you will know him, Andrew's brother-in-law. And Dr. Duffy is very particular about the way that he does things. And I, I don't know if it's a doctor thing, maybe not, but if Dr. Duffy is doing a sermon, everything lines up, all the things start with the letter P or the letter whatever it is, you know, this is the way that he works. Everything's structured and organized, and that's who he is. And I kind of think that Luke was maybe a little bit like that type of doctor. It says that he wants to get to the truth, investigate things. We also know that Luke accompanied Paul on some of his journeys because we find the word we popping up. If you read through the book of Acts, you will find the word we popping up where Luke is saying that we did this and we saw this and we went there. So Luke was also with Paul on some of the things that we read about in this book. We also know from what Paul says that Luke was alongside them. In 1 Timothy 4, 11, it says, Paul says to Timothy, only Luke is with me. And there's another reference in Philemon where he talks about Luke, my fellow worker. He talks about a number of people, but Luke being one of them. So Luke is the author of this book. And we need to understand that his purpose uh, was to write something that was going to be useful to a man called Theophilus. He wanted Theophilus to be sure of what he had been taught. Luke chapter 1 verse 4, to go back the way a wee bit, in the first book that, wrote, that Luke wrote, the Gospel of Luke, he wrote to Theophilus as well, and he says this, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. That you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. That's his purpose for writing the first book. And that's his purpose for writing the second book, that this man, Theophilus, that's easy to say when you're not standing in front of people, um, a Greek man was able to understand through reading for himself those things which he had been taught and had already accepted and believed, but the Holy Spirit was able to take these words and bring them to life in him as well. When it comes to the book of Acts, there is a key verse, and it's this one here, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. If you read any commentaries, this is the one that they will alight on and say, this is the key verse for this book. And it says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You notice that the power comes first then you will be my witnesses in all these different places. And as I said at the start, no Holy Spirit, no book of Acts. No apostles ready to wait for the Holy Spirit to come. No book of Acts. And there's also a clear link, if you look at this verse, there's a clear link between this one and what Matthew records in chapter 28 of his gospel where Jesus is recorded as saying to the disciples, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always 
to the very end of the age. By the way, if you're wondering why we haven't had a baptismal service, it's because the last people to have a baptismal service in here were the Livingston guys who uh, used their hall, and the baptismal tank leaked. And it leaked a lot, okay? So we need to get that fixed before we have a baptismal service, just so that you're aware. And listen to something that Jack Hayford says uh, about the book of Luke. He says, Luke wrote his gospel prior to Acts Uh, which he wrote during Paul's first Roman imprisonment, about AD 63. Since Luke was in Caesarea during Paul's two-year incarceration, uh, we read about that in Acts chapter 27, verse 1, uh, he would have had ample opportunity during that time to conduct the investigation he mentions in Luke uh, chapter 1, verse 1 through to 4. We also know that this book was written written before the destruction of the temple in AD 70. Uh, The temple in Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. All uh, the artifacts of the temple were carried off. In fact, in Rome, there's an old part of Rome where there's one of these arches. uh, And on the arch, there's the the actual carvings on the side of the arch on the inside where you see the the menorah, the the seven... uh, stem candlestick being carted off by Roman soldiers along with other things. And it depicts what happens in AD 70 when uh, Jerusalem and the temple is destroyed uh, by Rome. Luke never mentions that. And uh, he doesn't also, also doesn't mention that the Christians were persecuted under Nero, which was about AD 64. And uh, Luke doesn't make any reference to either of these things. And you're thinking, and why is that important? Well, it's important because Luke was able to investigate the facts with people who were eyewitnesses, people who had seen Jesus, who had heard Jesus. They'd known what had happened to Jesus. They'd seen it all firsthand. But also he was able to witness some of the things that he talks about with his own eyes. We read how Luke had a perfect understanding of all things from the very first and to write an orderly account He's saying this to Theophilus. We read that in Luke. Dr. Luke, Mr. Organized, writing an orderly account, having a perfect understanding of all things. He had spoken to people. He had seen things for himself. Luke accurately refers to Roman people and practices of government throughout the book of Acts. For example, we read about the governors and rulers Uh, that Paul appeared before. Luke also makes reference to real places as he recounts the spread of the gospel through Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and further afield as Paul begins his journeys. Yeah, so what? Why is all this important? I hear you asking. It's not your voices I hear, it's your body language I'm hearing. It's like, aye, get on with it. It's important because we can say with confidence that the works of Luke were written at a period of time around 30 years from the events of them actually happening. We don't know exactly when uh, all the books were written, the books of the New Testament, but we have an idea. There's sometimes disagreement, but the scholars at least have an idea. And this is important because of the reliability of what we're actually reading in the book of Acts. And there's a method of investigation uh, which will look at the date of writing of the original manuscripts and the number of copies and all of the translations 
that come from that. It's called bibliographical text, testing, not texting, testing. <laughs> bibliographical testing. And it's really, there's a whole world of study in this when we look at the reliability of what we actually read as the Bible and we, we talk about as the Word of God. There's a whole area of study in the reliability of the texts that we use. The first piece of text is the autograph. That's what Luke would have written. It's like his personal handwritten copy. Then after that, there'd be a number of copies made, which are called manuscripts. And uh, the, these original documents would have been copied many, many times over. And those copies would then have been translated into other languages. In fact, it's said that Bartholomew actually began to translate the book of Matthew uh, for some people in India into their language, um, which is quite interesting. But why is all this important? It's important because it relates to reliability. And I came across a diagram when I was looking at this whole thing about bibliographical text, and I hope I'm not putting you to sleep here. It is a bit technical at the moment. Try and stay with it. Um, this is the introduction. Hopefully, the rest of the messages will get more interesting than this, okay? Um, but if I put this up, you go, wow, that's too much information for me to take in at the one time, okay? But let me explain it. Right in the middle here is the events that all of these books refer to, okay? So Plato, uh, here's one down here called Tacitus. Uh, Tacitus has written a number of works on the history of Rome, uh, and you can see here that there are 33 existing copies of his work, and it was written somewhere between 750 and 950 years after the event. I have a copy of this uh, particular work on my iPad. I was interested in it because he talks about the Christians and how they were treated under Rome. I have never, ever heard MD question uh, the, the authenticity of the works of Tacitus, even despite the fact that there are only 33 copies and it was written somewhere between 750 and 950 years after the events. He would have went in and read other works and, and gathered information. By comparison, the New Testament was written somewhere around 30 to 40 years uh, after the events, and there are 5,795 existing copies of those original manuscripts. And by a certain point in time, there were 17,974 translations of those manuscripts into other languages. And we ask ourselves, why do people not believe that the Bible is an authentic work? See, this is why it's important, because I remember speaking to people in Mitsubishi about my faith, about what I believed, and I would use phrases like, the Bible says, because Billy Graham said, the Bible says, and I thought, if Billy Graham says it and he gets away with it, then maybe that's a good idea. So I'm saying, well, the Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then comes back the response, but the Bible is just a made-up book. It's just made up. It's just a piece of nonsense. It's a, you know, stories that people made up. But that's not the case. I wish somebody had talked about this for me then, and I'd have been able to say, well, actually, did you know that there was uh, 5,000 copies of the original texts uh, in the New Testament written, recorded, saved, methodically worked through, and it's been translated into so many different languages, 17,974 at the time when this diagram was made, and counting, 
And the people who actually wrote it, Luke, was there when it happened. This is why it's important. We need to know that we can trust what we're reading. It's so, so important that we can trust what we're reading. And so just at the outset, at the outset of all this, I think it's important that we recognize that what we're reading is an authoritative work. Luke investigating, inspired by the Spirit, to do all this and to write down these words for his friend Theophilus, a Greek man, not Jewish, but also a convert to Christianity. And his whole purpose was that Theophilus might know the certainty of the things in which he was instructed. It's important. This is why the books were written, that people might have that certainty, and we can have the same certainty. To move on in what we're saying today, and this is the introduction to the book of Acts, remember, there are many things that we can understand about the birth of the church from what Luke records. And one of the undisputed facts is that the church grew. In fact, the church grew in an explosive way. I would like to be part of a church that was growing in an explosive way, let me say. People say that it's not all about numbers. I've heard this, I've been in church for a long, long time. It's not all about numbers. Well, I had to make up my own mind about that phrase. It's not all about numbers. So what do I think? You see, numbers aren't just numbers. And I get what people are saying about maybe trying to build something that isn't God's kingdom and maybe our own kingdom, and therefore it's about numbers. But you see, numbers are people. Numbers are people who have a need to hear the gospel. And numbers are important because without the numbers, how do we know how many books to order? How many seats to put out? How many communion cups to prepare for a Sunday morning? The size of our building. Numbers are important. And I was reading something recently about businesses. You know, you've probably heard in the news uh, this week about businesses uh, which are uh, not doing so well. It's all about the numbers. It's all about measurement. It's all about making a profit. And here we are. We're involved in something called the kingdom of God, which isn't about making a profit, but it is about numbers because it's about people coming to hear the message of God. And as we look at this, Luke records this for us in the book of Acts. He starts off by talking about this church, which is 120 strong. It's meeting in a room, and they're waiting just as Jesus had commanded. In Acts 2, the church becomes 3,120, a 2,500% increase in one day on the day of Pentecost. In Acts 3, the crippled man who is healed as Peter prays for him, I'm pretty sure he would have been added to the church. So then it would have been 3,121, just for argument's sake, although the Bible doesn't say that. But in Acts 4, it goes on to record that the church became uh, 5,000 plus men. It doesn't include the women and the children. 
And then as we go on to read in the book of Acts, in chapter 5, we read about the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Have you, has anybody read that story? Ananias and Sapphira, who decide to sell a field and bring the money to the apostles' feet, as everybody else was doing, except they said that they sold it for £100, where they actually sold it for 150 and they kept 50 for themselves. They didn't need to do that. They could have just said it was 150, but that we're happy to give 100, and we'll keep the 50 for wee Jimmy, who needs to go to school next year. And that would have been fine. But they tried to deceive the church leaders, and they tried to deceive God, but well, you, you, you should really know that you can't deceive God. It just doesn't work. And it tells us that they dropped dead under God's judgment. And this is what it says in the book of Acts, no one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Verse 14, nevertheless, more and more men and women believed the Lord and were added to their numbers. Acts chapter 7, I think that is. And we read that the church grew rapidly. As the book progresses, the field of influence widens, the church gets broader and spreads out, and it becomes impossible to keep track of the numbers, but the numbers are important. That's why Luke records them for us. And then to continue just about the spread of the church, um, this is in the little handout which I've, uh, which I've given, uh, and it's also in the reading plan. Um, the church grew in three stages. Acts chapter 1 to 7 is all about Jerusalem. Acts chapter 8 to 12 is all about Judea and Samaria. And then the rest of the book, Acts chapter 13 through to 28, is all about the church going to all of the world. And one of the things that I put in uh, the reading plan are some markers in the text. When I was reading through the book of Acts, I began to see uh, these points in the text where it was almost like a, a pause. Uh, it was like almost like a stop for reflection type thing. And uh, uh, these, we'll, we'll look at those as you go through the, the reading plan. So Acts chapter 6, verse 7, chapter 9, chapter 12, chapter 16, chapter 19, and then uh, the, the end. And what can we learn about these early Christians well, the one thing that we need to know is that these were ordinary people, just like you and just like me. They were ordinary people, but they were ordinary people who trusted an extraordinary God. And I wonder sometimes if we lose that sense of the fact that we're ordinary people, but we trust an extraordinary God, a God who can do the miraculous, a God who can do things that we can't even dream of. Ordinary people who are prepared to trust and obey. Sounds really simple, doesn't it? In fact, we have a hymn which we sang many, many years ago, Trust and Obey for There's No Other Way. And those who know it well will be able to sing the rest of it. Trust and obey for there's no other way. The things that we learned in Sunday school, the things that simple truths that we learned there, and as we grow up, we need to know not just the simple truth, but how to put that into practice. And that's, that's sometimes where it gets difficult. How do we know God's speaking to us? How do we know that it's God and not just our own thoughts and imaginations? But these are extraordinary circumstances. These ordinary men were commanded to wait. Wait in Jerusalem, as we've read about. 
Who likes to wait for things? Is there anybody who likes to wait for things? No? Nobody likes waiting for things, okay? So we're all on the same page then, okay? We're all in the same boat. None of us really wants to wait on God, but sometimes, sometimes there's a timing in God for, every, you know, for, for the things that uh, we're, we're even praying about, expecting, believing for. There's a timing in God in those things, and we'll think about that uh, a little more next week. But these men, these men were called, they were convinced, they were commanded, and they were commissioned. The spirit of Ian Duffy comes upon me <laughs> with all my points beginning with C. By the way, I'm not going to go th- through four points at this point in the sermon, but I'm going to just highlight some of these things. As we read through this first little passage in Acts, we see that these men were called or chosen. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. Do you have any sense of, the, of being called or being chosen by God? As you were coming to church today, did you think, I am chosen? I have been called by the almighty creator of the universe to be part of his family. Do we have any sense of that as we prepare to come out to church in the morning? Let's be realistic. Life can overtake us and we we can forget through all the stuff that's going on. I had one of those days on Friday, by the way, where nothing worked. I seemed to spend a lot of time doing a lot of things and achieving absolutely zero because nothing worked. And it was like, ah, frustrating day. Nothing worked. But at no point in those frustrations did I go, I am a child of God. Called, chosen, chosen to be useful in his kingdom. Called, chosen. Do we have any idea or sense that we are chosen too, that we are called, that your life has purpose, a purpose greater than the humdrum of all the things that we do day in and day out? You get up, you shower, you shave, you have your breakfast, you go to work, you meet your pals, you come back, you have your tea, you watch some telly, you go to bed, you sleep, you get up, you shower, you shave. Do you, do you get what I'm saying? It's just like, there's a, there's a kind of sense that we need repetition in life, but sometimes we need something to happen that's outside of that and go, wait a minute, there's more to life than this. You are called for a reason and for a purpose so that when you get up and you shower and you shave and you go to work, there's a reason and a purpose for it. And it's more than just making money. It's because there are people in your work who have never heard about Jesus. It's because there are people round about you who have never even had any concept of the things that we are talking about today. You are called for a reason and for a purpose. And the question is, are we investing enough of our time and energy and resources into the purpose that God has for us? Are you invested into your calling? I think some people can be called into politics. Or people can be called into business. People can be called into the arts, 
music, TV, cinema. People can be called into sport, can be called into all sorts of areas to be a witness for God. We thought about one example of that a few months back about Eric Liddell, the runner, who was called, to, that was his purpose. By the way, the film says things that he never said, but that was his purpose. He wanted to glorify God through the thing that God had equipped him uniquely to do. You are called for a purpose. The second thing is that these apostles were convinced. It says, after his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God, Acts chapter 1 verse 3. And as you read through the Gospels, and as you read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you'll see many, many accounts of when Jesus came after his resurrection, when he was back from the dead and appeared to the disciples. The one that excites me most, and I wish I'd been there, was the two people who were on the way to Emmaus. Remember that story? And along came Jesus, and he says, oh, why are you looking so sad? And they're saying, are you the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard what's been going on? And then this amazing little line, I've got a book, which is this, this is the title of it. It says, Beginning with Moses. A friend recommended the book. Beginning with Moses, he began to open up the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, and talk about all the things that referred to him. They were convinced. They were so convinced when Jesus broke bread and then their eyes were opened and they went, why didn't we know? Why didn't we see? This is Jesus. He's been right with us all this time. He's been telling us about all this amazing stuff. And we just didn't grasp it. Are we convinced today? Are we convinced about what we believe? In a world of skepticism, in a world where the natural trumps the supernatural, if you want to think about it that way. Imagine what it was like for these people living 2,000 years ago who had actually seen with their own eyes the risen Jesus. Incredible. Wish had been there. But they were also commanded. On one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. He was talking about the Holy Spirit. You see, the next step for them was that they wait. Not that they go off and try to start the church on their own, with their own ideas and their own strength, their own resources, but wait for the Holy Spirit. And I think it's so important that we learn to wait for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been given at Pentecost, and I think we need to be people who are saying, inviting the Holy Spirit in to come and, and, and to change us and to mold us and to fill us and to, to, to keep us on the right track. The Bible gives an account in Acts chapter 2 of the, the disciples being baptized in the Spirit. And we'll talk a bit about that uh, next week. But in another reference in the Scriptures, it talks about being filled with the Spirit, to keep being filled with the Spirit, because we, we, we kind of we, we leak a bit. And it talks about these men who, without the Holy Spirit, there would be no book of Acts, no church, no believers, and none of all the things that we see in our world today that are a result of a transformed people living their lives in a transformed way. One of the interesting reads I had uh, a number of years ago was John Ottberg's book, uh, Who Is This Man? And he talks about the influence that Jesus has had in society over the years. It's a great book. 
I'd recommend it. But you see, the, the disciples had to wait. They needed to be obedient. And then last thing is that they were commissioned. This is what Jesus says, and this is the key verse in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is the great commission that the disciples would be witnesses, people who had seen firsthand the apostles were those who had seen Jesus firsthand. And as you read on in Acts in chapter 1, it talks about how they appointed somebody else, a man called Matthias, to be a firsthand witness. And for those believers in that time, it was to start in Jerusalem and then to spread out and spread out. You know, I wonder where, our, where is our Jerusalem? I think as a church, the church is slap bang in the middle of our Jerusalem, the church building anyway. This is our Jerusalem, our community here that needs to hear about Jesus. Our Judea and Samaria, much wider afield, perhaps West Lothian, maybe a bit further, and then to the ends of the earth. And you know, there's a, there's a, a mandate on the church to go to the ends of the earth. It took persecution for the church to get out of Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria because they thought, okay, this is good, this is great. We'll just stop there. But Jesus had said, no, no, you need to go further. And uh, it wasn't until Paul came along that he really began to take the message out. And uh, I'm going to put up this diagram. Uh, you know, a lot of information in that diagram, but if you can see all those lines, these are all the places where Paul actually traveled during his journeys, took the gospel with him, and sowed the seed and saw miracles happen and saw people come into faith. And the church was established in all of these different areas and then began to move further and further afield uh, after Luke stops writing uh, about the, you know, the content of the book of Acts. See, the church has a mandate to take the good news to the world. And I sometimes wonder if we have forgotten that. I'm going to put up another diagram. This is the last thing I'm going to say, okay? And this is a diagram which might look a bit weird and confusing at first, but it's, it's trying to sort of give us a graphical representation of how unreached the world is. This is unreached people groups proportional to the size of the country in which they live, okay? For those who are not sure, this is America, Mexico, South America, Canada, Alaska, you know, all these areas. There's us. Look at the size of India as a country with unreached people groups. The two biggest unreached nations are India and China. We can also see, it's hard to pick them out in this diagram, but there are a number of predominantly Muslim countries which are also unreached. And when we, did, when we were thinking about uh, compassion and uh, supporting kids with compassion, uh, we wanted to support kids in a country where the people were not as reached. Okay? Because this has been recorded, I won't use names but we support somebody else who works in Asia, who works in a closed country. And the reason that we want to support there through prayer and finance 
is because the people in that country are unreached. What's the point in sending all of our resources to places where they've already heard the gospel? You see, this is, this is the mandate of the church, is to go to the ends of the earth, not to go to the people who are part of our culture, they speak the same language, we eat the same stuff, we dress the same way, although that's important as well. But there's a mandate on the church to go to other nations where the gospel has never been heard, where it's never been translated into their language. What an incredible privilege it must be to actually be called to go to one of these nations and to be a worker for God in those nations. I wonder, I wonder if God's maybe saying to some people, to you, maybe to people that you know, that actually I'm beginning to stir you up because I want you to go, go into all the corners of the earth, to nations where they've never heard the gospel, to preach the good news. You know, there's a cost to being a disciple. There's always a cost. And when I talked at the start about the acts of the Holy Spirit or the acts of the apostles, what is it? Well, it's the acts of both. Because these people who went out, some of them to these countries that we see, interesting that Turkey is one of those least reached countries, but that's the place where the church began. The seven churches that you read about in Revelation are all based right in here, in a nation which is becoming increasingly difficult to share the gospel in. You see, the point is that each of us are called but are we convinced? We've all been commanded, but the question is, are we all willing to be obedient to what God is calling us to? We're all commissioned to be His witnesses in this world, every single one of us. And Dion reminded us on the first message of the new year from Zechariah, where it says, in chapter 4, verse 6, that it's not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. Are we willing to put ourselves in that place? Are we willing to prayerfully take up this book and to look at the, the reading plan and work our way through this and pray our way through this and pray for the church and pray that God begins to do something that is going to change the landscape. I believe that we can be part of something that changes the landscape, the physical landscape, the socio-economic landscape, the educational landscape, the cultural landscape, that we can do something as a church that will reverberate down through the generations, not just for us, but for our children and for our children's children. God wants to do something, and the question is, are we willing to be part of that? Or do we just see church as something that we go to on a Sunday? That's the challenge. It's a serious, serious challenge. Sorry to get so heavy on you. I really, I really am sorry to be so heavy, but this is the challenge. Are you prepared to go? Are you prepared to be a witness? You need to know that you're called, but you need to be convinced about what you believe in. You're commanded to go into all the world and commissioned to do so and given the strength to do so. 
Will you be that person today? Will you say, okay, I might not be able to go to India, but I'm going to take this website here. You probably can't read on the bottom. It's called the Joshua Project. I'm going to take a nation and I'm going to pray for that nation, that the gospel opens up in that nation. You might not be able to physically go yourself, but you can still do something. And prayer is powerful and it starts with prayer. And in the little handout that I handed out today uh, as sermon notes, one of the things that I quoted was Gary Davidson, who a number of years ago in here said that nothing of eternal value is accomplished without prayer. Nothing. These men and women were together. These 120 were together in the upper room. They prayed, they earnestly prayed, and they waited, and God did something. Let's bow our heads, close our eyes. Musicians, please come back up to the platform. And we're going to pray. Father, we thank you for the incredible encouragement that we find in the book of Acts. Father, we just want to be, we want to be your church for this day, for our time, for our culture, for the people that we associate with, for those who are in our nation. Father, for those who you will call us to across the world. And Lord, we pray that you would lead us into these things, that you would show us what you're specifically asking us to do. And Father, we pray that you'd help us to wait for you, not to be running ahead and trying to produce things in our own strength, but Father, to wait for the power of the Spirit, for the, the anointing of the Spirit, and to move in uh, just, just in that flow of the Spirit. Father, not to be trying to run ahead of you, but Father, we just pray that you do something new in our time and in our day and in our generation. Father, something that will last forever. I remember singing that song in here years and years ago, Father. I want to be part of something that's going to last forever. can't remember the, the exact words of the song. And Father, I remember that day, those words resonating in my heart. And Father, I want to be part of something that lasts forever. And Father, I pray that that would be each of our prayer, uh, prayers today in this place, that we would want to be part of something that lasts forever. So, Father, we just pray that you would come by your Spirit and that you would really seal these words in our hearts. Fathers, we begin to pick up the book of Acts this week and begin to read through that. As we begin to pray through that, meditate on your word. And as we pray for the church over the course of the coming weeks, Lord, we pray that you would just uh, respond to our best efforts to come to you. Father, to be obedient to you. And Father, we ask that you do something new amongst us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.